You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. John MacArthur says that the redeemed heart longs for communion with God. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with what? All your heart. Can't be half-hearted about God. God doesn't respond to the half-hearted. Well, I gave you a little bit there, God, and then you didn't do much for me because you were half-hearted. You're not half-hearted about the things you really love, are you? Don't be half-hearted about God. Would you say you're a follower of God or a follower of the world? Would your family, friends, or coworkers agree with that assessment? Pastor Tom will share with us today that sometimes, because of the grace we benefit from, we can become lax in our relationship with God. Now, we can't strive to be good enough, and it's true that Christ's atonement is sufficient for all of our weakness, but that should never rob us of the reverence and love that should be given in return for His sacrifice. Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 4 as he continues his message, The Cure for Worldliness. You ever hold up a mirror? You know, you think you're good looking until you look in the mirror? And then the reality's there? Oh my, where did all that come from? That's what the Word of God is, it's a mirror. But it helps us to deal with what's true. You're not as loving as you ought to be, and I'm not either. You're not as compassionate as you ought to be, and I'm not either. You're not as reverent towards the Lord as you ought to be, and I'm not either. You're not truthful enough with people about things going on in your life. You don't open up enough to others. God wants you to. If you look in the Word, it'll tell you that. I guess that's why people close the book and walk away from it, right? Going to quit looking in the mirror. But God says there's benefits of looking in the mirror, and there's benefits of drawing near to God, and there's benefits of letting the Holy Spirit do in your life what He wants to do. What are the benefits? There's forgiveness. There's a clear conscience. How about that for starters? Would you like that? A clear conscience? I bet some of you don't have a clear conscience right now. You don't have a clear conscience. You can't operate properly because you're hiding sin. There's cleansing. Would you like to be cleansed? Who wants to be dirty? Does it ever really feel good being dirty? There's intimacy with the divine being. What a privilege. There's reward beyond anything that the world can offer. There's confidence in a clean conscience, by the way. It gives you confidence. There's clarity of mind. You're able to look at your life and look at what's going on around you and have clarity of mind and not be flattered and fooled. There's guidance from the Holy Spirit. There's protection of yourself from Satan's attacks. He's a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. He looks for the weak spot, for the person that doesn't have the shield of faith up, who didn't put on the breastplate of righteousness, who's dabbling with sin. He's looking for that person in this congregation and every congregation so he can rip them apart. That's what he's looking for. There's peace in your inner being. There's unspeakable joy welling up from inside. There's love that's shared. We as believers have every incentive to press on to seek to know the Lord more. Psalm 145, 18, just of many. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. By the way, if you were thinking in your mind, no, He's never going to be near to me because He never listens to me, then you just contradicted the Bible. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. Just be sincere. Don't pretend to be sincere. Be sincere. Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection. Each Lord's day, why do we even gather here? Why do you come to church? Is it a social thing for you? Or are you coming here that you may draw closer to God? 
the years go by, the decades go by, and you come to church, or you come in to church to draw closer to God, that I may know Him more, that I may love Him more, that I may follow Him more closely. Is that what it's all about? That's the whole point. It's not to entertain you. It's not what was the music about. Did the pastor keep me awake today? It's about are you getting closer to God? Is the truth impacting you? What are you doing when it's going out to you? Is it just kind of swirling around there and you're like, just another day, it's over with? Or are you drawing closer to God in your spirit? Do you want to know Him more? John MacArthur says that the redeemed heart longs for communion with God. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with what? All your heart. Can't be half-hearted about God. God doesn't respond to the half-hearted. Well, I gave you a little bit there, God, and then you didn't do much for me because you were half-hearted. You're not half-hearted about the things you really love, are you? Don't be half-hearted about God. Hebrews 4, 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Funny how when it's time of need, we come running wholeheartedly to God. I know sometimes life is very confusing and unfair. We sang about uh, behind a frowning providence is a smiling face from God. Sometimes we're looking at all the frowning providence. You know what that means? Life looks like God doesn't care for you. A frowning providence. The way God has arranged it, it looks like it's not going in your favor. Look at your relationships. Look at your job. Look at all this stuff. How could this happen to me? It's just that I wasn't set up with the right personality in life. You know, I didn't have the right parents. I didn't have... The, you, know, you just go through the whole thing and you can see how it could all be set up better and God didn't set it up better. That's a frowning providence. But behind it is a what? Smiling face. You believe that? you believe God smiles upon you in Christ Jesus, that He loves you and wants you to draw closer to Him? You need to believe that. That's the gospel, that He receives you, loves you, accepts you in Christ. That's so important. You know, if you go to the Psalms, it'll help you draw near to God because it'll deal with all the confusion, all the things that feel unfair, all the inequities, and you'll read a Psalm after another. It'll come from a heart. It had to come from the heart because it's inspired. It's in the Psalter. It's in the Bible, right? And, and you'll find you'll find what your heart is struggling with, and you'll find someone's already struggled with that, and you'll pinpoint it and go, oh, those aren't exactly the words I would have used, but that's exactly the spirit with which I'm struggling with with God, and you'll find it in the Psalms, and you just read through the Psalms, and you'll find it. If the part where David is praying about the destruction of his enemies doesn't fit exactly your situation right now, then you ignore that Psalm, and you go on to another Psalm, and you find the one that expresses your heart. Maybe it'll be Psalm 27. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. That's how he felt sometimes. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Struggles of faith are in the psalm. Psalm 13, 1. How long, O Lord? It's one of my favorite psalms, by the way. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? So read it thoughtfully, and it'll assist you draw nigh unto God. He awaits your heart change. Now, the second couplet comes... At the end of verse 8, please notice that. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
These are words of washing and getting clean. You know, you like to take a shower, you like to take a bath, like to scrub, get all the dirt off. Some of you like to get dirty probably under the hood or out in the yard or something. But afterwards, you know, you don't want to keep that dirt. You want to get clean. You want to get clean. Well, these are words of washing and getting clean, coming into God's presence. You know, it's funny how we do that for church, you know. We, we take a shower, you know, work it into the hair or whatever you have up there, you know. You work it in and you get all clean, you know. You spray yourself, smell good, put on everything, come in, look good. But what about your heart attitude? Is it clean? Did you work on that? So I didn't know I was supposed to. Well, now you know you're supposed to. It's there. They speak of the need of moral and religious purity, and it implies that there's existing impurity. By the way, you already talked about that earlier in the chapter. Filthiness, pollution, contamination. You go out and you interact with the world. You have to, but then it contaminates you. You start thinking wrongly. You get proud like they're proud, and you start to imitate them, and you don't like it about yourself, but it's true of yourself, and now you've got to wash it all off. Notice that there's double-minded and sinners. They're called double-minded and sinners. Some think because the word sinners is used here that, that can, that's only given and to describe unbelievers in Scripture. But believers were being corrected for being double-minded way back in chapter 1, verse 8, if you remember that. There are two-souled believers who pursue God, pursue the world, double-minded. They want the things of God, but they want the things of the world. They're double-minded. They don't have wholehearted devotion to God. That's a believer. And this certainly would correct any false believers in the congregation. There'd be some unsaved in the congregation. But true believers sometimes act like sinners too, and they have to repent. After all, Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15 that he was the chief of all sinners. This whole context of the epistle of James is written to believers, though clearly some of it may be aimed at unbelievers. But this whole section is rebuked to the church. It's calling the church back to God. So this is a call for believers to take their sanctification very seriously. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity. There it is. He doesn't want you dirty, but in sanctification. The world loves dirt, and they laugh at dirt. They revel in dirt. You're going to have to make up your mind that you don't fit in with them. Notice again that this is your personal responsibility for your sanctification. You have to own your sanctification. It's your responsibility. If progress is not being made, you have no one to point the finger at except yourself. Don't say, well, when I have trouble, I'm going to go to counseling. The counselor can't change you. The counselor is going to guide you to the same things that you're reading right now. And they're just going to say, why didn't you apply it? I don't know. I thought just eventually that it would happen. I guess just if I came and I heard enough sermons, it would soak in. No. No. It just made you harder. If you're sitting there listening to the Bible and not applying it, you're getting worse. You're getting worse. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. You're getting hardened or you're getting soft. You need to get softer. You need to get a lot softer. You need to take the Word as it's coming out to you, wherever you are. It's a very dangerous thing to sit in church if you're not going to do anything about it. It's a very dangerous thing. We need to be responding. Take own your own sanctification. It's interesting that the other Scriptures, most Scriptures, when they refer to cleansing, talk about God cleansing you. But this one says, cleanse yourself. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? No. For, for those who lack the Spirit of Christ and don't understand, one is saying, here's your responsibility to do what you need to do. God is always there to do the harder thing and do what He needs to do. Just for an example, 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as God Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. He's doing His part. Or Titus 2, 14 
Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Notice again, you don't get to the good deeds, you don't get to pleasing God until you get the cleansing. Don't show up dirty and say, use me, Lord. Now, notice James is focusing on body parts here that need cleansing. He says, the hands need cleaning and the heart needs cleaning. Like a whole bath, let's get all of you. Take a spiritual bath as you come into God's presence. You know, they would have that ritual cleansing before they came up to the temple. When we went to Israel, we got to actually walk down in one of these they'd unearth. You'd walk down on one side, down into the water, and then you'd come back the other side, and that didn't cleanse your soul, but it was the ritual the Jews went through before they would ascend up into the temple. Get clean before you go worship and before you go serve and offer yourself to God. Get clean. Walk down one side dirty. Go down in the water, get washed, and walk back the other side. Don't go on the other side because that's dirty. Go on the clean side, back on up. And that's how it was. It was kind of why They let us walk down and come back in. Of course, it doesn't change your heart, does it? But it was a symbol of what should be going on inwardly. The hands. Why clean the hands? What do the hands stand for? What you do? The hands accomplish things. You know, God talks about, I did this by the might of my hand, or some arrogant man might boast about what his hand accomplished. In Exodus 3.20, God says, I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. That's how you do things with your hands. Hands can become unclean by engaging in sin. What have you done with your hand? They can falsely arrest somebody. They can falsely withhold pay from someone who has earned it. James will get to that in chapter 5. They can strike at somebody. They can murder them. He already talked about steal things from them. The hands can sin. The hands can withhold helping where they should help. The hands can be going and doing just the selfish things all day long, just playing your little games with your hands and not offering help to anybody. That's a sinful hand. The heart refers to all the inner life, the thoughts. It's not good enough to take care of the actions. You have to purify the inside. It too has a lot of impurity, lusts, already mentioned. Fanciful worlds that are created using our God-given imagination to create a world in which we can plop ourselves in the middle of that and sin to our heart's delight. That's impurity of the heart. Judgmentalism. Look at that person. I can't believe they acted that way. I can't believe they said that. Well, what are you doing to clean up yourself first? We'll get to that also. Jealousy, the selfish kind. Animosity towards others. We need Scripture to come on in to the mind and knock out the thoughts that we have replaced. We need to think in a whole new way as believers if we're going to be clean. Here as we draw near to God, we must avail ourselves of God's greater grace and sanctification, and He moves upon us to expunge all of that filthy stuff, to excise from our life all of the impurity. This is more of the medicine that will keep us away from worldliness. We must be purposeful, though, about our sanctification. We cannot sit on our hands and expect to become stronger Christians. Colossians 3.5 says, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. You must pull your members back and say, No, no, members, I'm not going there. Practically speaking, what might this mean for you? It depends on what you're struggling with. First of all, throw all your porn away. Cease and desist. Get some accountability for your computer. Pour out your alcohol. Be free of its slavery. Turn from sexual perversion. You're flirting with an adulterous relationship. Run from that. Now, homosexual thoughts, understand those are not from God. They're not natural. 
for you. You're created in Christ. People are not born homosexuals. They choose to be homosexuals. If it were not so, then God would be the one tempting people to do that. It's a sin. Turn away from it. If you have the thoughts, then fight the thoughts. Get help with that. Renew your thinking. Fornication, whatever it may be. The greatest temptation to you in your house to sin might be your couch. You understand what I'm saying? What do you do on your couch? Nothing. You eat potato chips, 27 different varieties. You're gaming all the time, you sluggard. Get up and finish the work. Put away some of your movies. Some movies tempt you to being so vengeful. So you're like, forget this G-rated, R-rated stuff. Some of the G-rated movies are the worst. They have the worst spiritual messages. Some R-rated movies have great messages. I can't think of one right now, but <laughs> I'm sure there's one. Some of, the, some of the Westerns that I used to love, you know, it's all about, get them, kill them, kill them. It's just, and then you go away from that, how do you feel? I'm just, I was sucked into revenge, and I couldn't let go. I had, the guy had to be killed. I mean, smushed killed. I mean, hang him high. And you're like, okay, well, what's that doing to my heart? We're laughing about it. What does that actually do to your heart? Nothing. It's just a movie. Oh, don't lie to yourself. Some of your electronics, they control you. Everyone 25 and under needs to be listening to this. Their electronics control you. You don't control them. You have to control them. Some of you are jealous of someone. That needs to end. You can end it. You can end it. You don't have to live a life of jealousy. What, what pain, what torture you put yourself through? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Get busy with that. Get serious about that. That's our responsibility. Next, we see the third grouping in verse 9. This expresses the heart of repentance. Verse 9, be miserable. And it's funny, is this, what does it say in the Bible? It says be joyful. No, the Bible says be miserable. If you read the Bible, you're going to be miserable. We're going to talk about that. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Funny because there's a verse that says, you know, your mourning will be turned into joy. And here it says your joy to gloom. This verse includes the inner heart of repentance. Still talking about repentance, here's the heart of it. It's got the inner heart of repentance, but it's also got the outward show of repentance. Notice, God's people sometimes are called upon to repent. In one word, the cure for worldliness could be said as repentance. Richardson writes this, the four imperatives that follow in this verse together call for a deep transformation of attitude toward God. Nothing short of an attack, an attack upon the inner self and its hypocritical attitude will do. What a statement. You ever thought about that? Nothing short of an attack upon the inner self and its hypocritical attitude will do. Be miserable and mourn and weep. You know what miserable means? It means miserable. It means to grieve. It's a very strong term, to count oneself as wretched. When Paul was considering himself apart from Christ, he said in Romans 7.24, wretched man that I am. He understood what he was apart from Christ. Rather than pursuing popularity and riches and prestige, rather than pursuing the admiration of others, we are to repent in misery. Why? Because we're so shallow, because worldliness is so rampant, because our attitudes are so wrong so much of the time. Usually this term would go along with hardship and harsh labor. Someone was put under the taskmaster and it says they are miserable. 
That's what you're to do to yourself. Be miserable about it. Israel would be mourning and they would be miserable when a catastrophe would come upon them. Here James is saying, consider the catastrophe that is your life and be miserable about your life. By the way, I wonder how all the self-esteem proponents deal with this verse. Be miserable about your life. Don't judge others for all their failures. Oh, you can find lots of things wrong with everybody. You can start with me, make your list, but don't judge them. Look at your own life first. What do you see there? Oh, it's a pretty good life. You're not looking close enough. And then there's mourning, the second term, pentheo. It refers to passionate grief. It was used at a funeral. It says of Abraham in Genesis 23 that he went in to mourn for Sarah when she died and to weep for her. It's like you're looking at your life as if it's dead to the things of God in a sense, that it hasn't grown the way it's supposed to grow, and you're mourning it. You're mourning over sin in your life, in other words. The Word of God shines upon you, and it shows you you're not a good person. You don't love God the way you should. And, and when you get that, when you understand that, you don't run from it. You see it, and you mourn it. It's sad. It's very, very sad. You're uncommitted to Christ. Pastor Rod was emphasizing the sacrifice of this missionary family, but you listen to, to Jennifer, and she sounds like she wants to minister to everyone, if, even as her husband has died. Look at the commitment that family gave to the cause of Christ. And sometimes you're struggling with the smallest commitments. Get out of bed and come to church. Come earlier and get to your community. There's people there that love you and that you're supposed to love. Go to your small group. The smallest commitments. Why don't you have more commitment? What, what do you see in your life, spiritually speaking? You should mourn that. And some of you can't even get out of bed. There are many dirty people walking around, spiritually speak, speaking, and they're stinking up the place, frankly. They think themselves beauty queens. They need to listen to the Word of God. Look into the mirror of the Bible. Do you see a beauty queen? I know I don't. I don't see a beauty queen when... When Tom looks into the Bible, I just see more of what I want to be. I want to be transformed. It's an interesting thing about this mirror. It really is. It's not magical because it's not magic with God, but it's supernatural. It's a mirror that transforms you into its image, into the image of Christ. The more you look with that compliant heart, the more you look into it and say, God, I'm not that yet. Make me like that. The more it works. The more you just read it like, well, I read my chapter for the day. It's not going to work that way. And then the third word, weeping, klao. Did he mean this literally? Yes, he meant this literally. As you look at your life and you understand your life and you don't see humility and you don't see godliness and you don't see a commitment to Christ, you see yourself loving the things of the world. The appropriate thing as you're miserable and you're mourning that is that you would actually shed some tears for yourself. Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, and then he wrote in 2 Corinthians that he had caused them sorrow that was according to the will of God, which produced repentance. And he was glad that it was that kind of a sorrow, a sorrow that led to tears of repentance, not just regret. As Paul moved the Corinthians to godly sorrow, James urges believers to mourn their own sin to the point of tears. Richardson again says, God uses trials to weed out rebelliousness from the heart of the believer. In anticipation of the outcome, however, serious believers launch a spiritual war 
within themselves and wreak the devastation upon their own rebellious heart. You get it? Before God brings the chastening hand, bring it upon yourself and mourn. Wow, what a heavy word. But it does beg the question, do we take our sin as seriously as God does? Do we mourn our sinfulness? Jesus endured the cross, shed his blood, and laid down his life, despising the shame, for the joy of our reconciliation. Pastor Tom challenged us, are we willing to lay down our lives, our desires, our comforts, habits, and vices that we should be reconciled? It's time to confess and repent. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leake, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Next time on Discover Hope, Pastor Tom will continue unpacking this passage in James and addressing our need for humble submission and repentance to God. When we come to that place before God, we will find that there isn't condemnation or punishment, but rather a reward awaiting us. The Father's arms are open wide, waiting for our return. To listen again to today's message in the book of James, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word, so join us again right here on Discover Hope.